America is threatened by a new drug menace. Street corner vendors whose stock in trade is the deadly local weed marijuana pass it out in cigarette form. Marijuana smoking, experts point out, can make a helpless addict of its victim within weeks, causing physical and moral ruin and death. The truth is that every reefer is loaded with immorality and bestial perversions, brutality, murder, sex crimes, insanity or suicide. Should you ever be confronted with the temptation of taking that first puff of a marijuana cigarette, don't do it. Hello, welcome. I'm Ben Boyce. This week, I want to go back in time. Whatever happened to predictability, the milkman, the paperboy. Further than that. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Further even than that. The Treasury Department intends to pursue a relentless warfare against the despicable dope peddling vulture who preys on the weakness of his fellow man. A little further. La cucaracha, la cucaracha, ya no quiere caminar, porque no tiene porque la falta, marihuana que fumar. There it is. That was actually Steffi Duna performing La Cucarocha in 1934. But that song's history goes back way farther, to at least 1910. And if you listen closely, or if you already know the lyrics to the song, they basically say the cockroach can't walk anymore because he doesn't have any marijuana to smoke. And marijuana is a slang word. You could hear it in the song even though she was singing in Spanish. Now that guy that was talking right before her about the Treasury Department declaring war on despicable dope-peddling vultures, that was Harry Anslinger sometime in the 1930s. Let's talk about how Harry Anslinger made his way to the position he occupied during the origins of the War on Drugs. See, usually the story of the War on Drugs in the United States starts with Harry Anslinger, the man who headed the Treasury Department's Bureau of Narcotics, a precursor to the DEA. But Anslinger didn't just pop out of the sky one day and land in a cushy, powerful government office. He was placed there strategically. And the story of how he wound up there explains an often confusing piece of the war on drugs. Who really started the war and why? So let's go back to the 1800s, before drugs were illegal or regulated at all in most places. And let's start with some U.S. history and a few names that you might recognize. Personalities of the day, John D. Rockefeller enjoying his 94th year with three holes of golf per outing. He left business and his multi-million dollar philanthropies to younger hands. John Rockefeller lived from 1839 to 1937, and he's widely known because of his ownership of Standard Oil. He's also considered the richest person in U.S. history. And of course, we remember him as associated with monopolies because in 1911, the Supreme Court broke up his monopoly on oil. Rockefeller was also an investor in Big Pharma, and so was one of his contemporaries, Andrew Carnegie. That'll all come to bear later in the story. Andrew Carnegie lived from 1835 to 1919, so I'm starting with two big U.S. historical figures that were really popular just before the turn of the 20th century, 1900. Andrew Carnegie's big thing was steel. Although, at the end of his career, he also invested in this budding industry called pharmaceuticals. Carnegie and Rockefeller both became role models for what success looked like in the early 1900s. They were the people that everyone looked up to. 
And they did that by riding the tide of culture, technology, and energy. See, Carnegie wasn't just into steel. He turned his steel industry into railroad contracts and into high-rise buildings in places like New York City and Chicago. Same with Rockefeller. He wasn't just an oil tycoon. He turned his basic oil company, which started before cars were even on the road and was originally restricted to fuel oil for homes or lamps, he turned that into the biggest company in U.S. history. At one point in the early 1900s, he controlled 90% of all U.S. oil. So now let's push ahead to the early 1900s. And there, ladies and gentlemen, is the new Ford V8. Observe its streamlined hood, the V-shaped radiator, its lines which suggest performance and luxury. No wonder Henry and Edsel Ford observed their handiwork with approval. Henry Ford's one of those guys that looked up to Carnegie and Rockefeller. And of course, as you probably know, he's famous for making cars, along with creating norms for factory labor and mass production. Norms that would persist for a hundred years. And of course, Ford's business relied on a steady supply of what both Rockefeller and Carnegie were selling. Although by that time, the 1900s had rolled around, and those two men had passed their empires on to new business leaders. They weren't running them themselves anymore. One more name to add to the mix, as we're really digging into the 1900s, William Randolph Hearst, who lived from 1863 to 1951. You might recognize him as historically associated with what we often call yellow literature. It was named for the cheap paper it was printed on that turned yellow over time. Hearst ran a ton of press organizations, and he printed his own papers, his own copy. And cleverly, he also purchased a ton of land covered in forest because he wanted to produce his own paper to then print his own products to save a lot of money. Hearst's tabloids were all over the place. And they ran the gamut from the sort of bizarre conspiracy theories we see nowadays at the checkout aisle, like Hillary Clinton is raising an alien baby, or George Soros is 500 years old, all the way up to more respected news organizations like the San Francisco Chronicle and the Atlanta Georgian. And he even owned entertainment magazines, including Cosmopolitan. And like Ben Franklin before him, he understood that printed propaganda allowed him to bend the opinions of the public, usually from behind the scenes, since he wasn't the author of any of the stories that were actually printed in his magazines. So we've got Rockefeller and Carnegie, who set the stage and gave us role models for success prior to the 1900s. We got Henry Ford, who makes cars in the 1900s. We've got William Randolph Hearst, who controls a big chunk of the press in the 1900s and really enjoys yellow journalism or tabloid news propaganda. And we can add Andrew Mellon to the mix, who lived from 1855 to 1937. He's actually sort of a centerpiece to this entire discussion. He's a well-known banker who funded many of those well-known businessmen of the time, including William Hearst, and another name we'll get to in just a second, Lamont DuPont II. Andrew Mellon was also Secretary of the Treasury from March 9, 1921, up until February of 1932. And during that time, he created a new department to combat illegal possession of drugs in the United States. It was couched in the Treasury Department because people with illegal drugs haven't paid taxes on them. That department was called the Bureau of Narcotics. And like I said, it would later become the DEA. A single pound of opium bought in Bombay for $50 can fetch up to $900 at an American or Canadian port. 
and broken down for sale to drug addicts, $15,000. Now when it came time to hire a leader, Andrew Mellon appointed his son-in-law, a then unknown, unexperienced politician named, you guessed it, Harry Anslinger. That was in 1931. Before his appointment to that office, Harry Anslinger had actually minimized the dangers of marijuana use. But once he was appointed to that cozy new governmental position, his attitude changed. But why? Well, to answer that, we've got to put one more name in the mix to bring this all together. And that name is Lamont DuPont II, who was born in 1880 and lived till 1952. He probably recognized that last name, DuPont. He inherited his parents' company and became a kingpin in chemicals, textiles, and other manufactured products. And most of those products used oil. Now, from DuPont, comes Tellar, the antifreeze that outlasts your car. DuPont Number 7 Auto Polish cleans down deep. Remove stains, dulling road film, even weathered paint. In no time, you get a long... DuPont had bought the patents on tons of oil-based products. Things like nylons, brushes, and lots of other products that could be mass-produced using byproducts of petroleum. And he, too, was funded by Andrew Mellon's bank. Now let's step away from these characters and talk about a massive crop in the United States, and across the world for that matter, called cannabis, or hemp. Hemp had been around for thousands of years already, and you can literally make anything out of it. Fabrics, plastics, foods, medicines, paper, healthcare products. The list is really long. And the crop was set to explode. We were heading towards an industrial revolution on a mass scale, and hemp could grow anywhere. It used few pesticides. It didn't ruin the land that it was grown on. And it could even be used to make fuel. In 1941, Henry Ford actually produced a car that ran on hemp fuel. So as you might imagine, DuPont was in big trouble. He had these patents that relied on plastic manufacturing, on petroleum. If cannabis became as big as people were saying, that might really destroy his industry. So that was DuPont's big problem with hemp. But it wasn't just DuPont. William Randolph Hearst's tabloid newspaper stash, all that wood he had bought in the form of forest, it was also about to be worthless, since hemp paper is so much cheaper to produce than the wood paper he was using. And Mellon, well, he was the guy behind the guys, the investor who needed them to succeed if they were ever going to pay back their bank loans. They all stood to lose a ton of money if petroleum products could be replaced by cheap, sustainable, clean hemp products. And the threat was real. Popular Mechanics magazine, which is still around today, it wasn't one of Hearst's magazines, so they ran an article about hemp cultivation in the early 1930s called Billion Dollar Crop. They foresaw a future where hemp became part of the strategy for pulling the U.S. out of this Great Depression and reinventing us as a world leader in production and manufacturing. And apparently, these oil-reliant tycoons read that article, or others like it, because they mounted a massive defense. More deadly even than these soul-destroying drugs is the menace of marijuana. Of course, William Randolph Hearst already had the weapons to mount that defense, and his publications cranked up the propaganda machine in the early 1900s, printing flyers, posters, articles, and even entire magazines designed to terrify would-be users into avoiding a drug that he called 
marijuana. Normally, Harry Anslinger is the man credited with grabbing that slang word, marijuana, from Mexican culture and then using it to strike fear into the hearts of middle-class white Americans. But it was William Randolph Hearst who popularized its use. He was just hiding behind his magazines, whereas Anslinger was making a deliberate public spectacle of himself. So he usually gets the credit historically. In 1923, one of Hearst's newspapers called marijuana a shortcut to the insane asylum. They said, quote, smoke marijuana cigarettes for a month, and what was once your brain will be nothing but a storehouse for horrid specters. In 1928, another Hearst paper reported that marijuana was known in India as, quote, the murder drug. And in another claim, this one should sound familiar for all the people that have been hearing rainbow fentanyl fear stories lately on the news. He claimed that you could grow enough cannabis in a window box to, quote, drive the whole population of the United States stark raving mad. So that was Hearst's role in getting the anti-cannabis ball moving. But Harry Anslinger also popularized the word and associated it with stereotypes of Mexican immigrants threatening white people. Not necessarily because he was racist, although it appears from our perspective that he was, but because he knew it would get would-be supporters on board to allow him to pass the new laws he wanted to pass to restrict it. Remember, cannabis tincture was available across the country, and even in mail-order catalogs, usually without a prescription. Most people knew it wasn't making anyone go insane, kill their family, or sexually assault their neighbors. But this new marijuana stuff that was showing up in the newspapers? That sounded like a real problem. And since it was coming across the southern border, it was a problem that many folks felt needed to be solved. It's pretty clear, in fact, that many of those who ultimately voted in favor of the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, which effectively outlawed hemp cultivation, they didn't realize they were also voting to outlaw that lucrative crop called hemp or the medicine called cannabis. They just knew there was this new terrifying drug called marijuana. So the passage of the original marijuana laws in the United States at the federal level, they benefited people like William Randolph Hearst, the DuPont Corporation, and Andrew Mellon. And the only reason it worked was because, by that point, the United States had already decided to start pinning the blame for their problems on chemicals instead of doing the work of self-improvement. No one just gives up a great life with supportive family and friends to disappear into a bottle or a pipe. We find ourselves using problematically or struggling with addiction when those other things aren't in order. But those other things require a lot of effort to fix, and they also require a lot of humble self-reflection to recognize. That's not what our country's usually about. So instead, we entered into a century of war against the chemicals, against ourselves, and against our people. And it was all based on our willingness to ignore evidence that continues to this day to show that drugs are not as dangerous as lawmakers are or were claiming. We keep letting them outlaw those drugs anyway. Of course, it didn't end as racism started to shift and change in the United States and was removed as the central tenet of the war on drugs. In 1969, a case went to the Supreme Court in which Timothy Leary was the defendant, convicted of possession of marijuana. He'd driven down to Mexico with his family, but Mexico wouldn't let him in. And on his way back, he was pulled over by the U.S. Border Police, and his car was searched. They found marijuana, 
and Leary was charged with illegal possession based on the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act law. But he argued that had he sought to get the stamp in his home state or in Texas where he was arrested, he would have had to incriminate himself, a violation of his Fifth Amendment. And the Supreme Court actually agreed. The Marijuana Tax Act was held to be unconstitutional in 1969. And it was then that Richard Nixon formed a commission under the chairmanship of a man named Raymond Schaefer, a former Republican governor of Pennsylvania. The so-called Schaefer Commission was supposed to be a spectacle, a bit of a hit job. Schaefer was supposed to come back and say, marijuana's really dangerous, we've got to keep it outlawed. But Schaefer decided to actually do the study, and, surprise, he found out that marijuana wasn't as dangerous as typically depicted in the media, and he recommended decriminalizing it outright. But of course, this too wasn't a surprise to anyone who'd been following similar research for nearly a hundred years at that point. In 1895, the Royal Opium Commission reported that opium isn't that bad. In 1894, the Indian Hemp Drug Commission reported that weed isn't that bad. And yet in 1912, the U.S. began passing anti-drug laws anyway, mostly aimed at opium and cocaine at that point. Then in 1937, it was the Marijuana Tax Act, which effectively banned cannabis. And in 1944, the LaGuardia Report, put together by the mayor of New York, said weed shouldn't be illegal at all, and again, that it wasn't as bad as it had been depicted. In 69, Leary got the Marijuana Tax Act overturned, but by 1970, Congress had passed the Controlled Substance Act and outlawed marijuana while adding these new schedules. It put marijuana at the highest danger level, Schedule 1, allegedly more dangerous than cocaine or amphetamine. And in 1972, two years later, Nixon's Schaefer Commission suggested that marijuana should be outright decriminalized. And we've gone on that way ever since, shifting back and forth between which drugs are legal, which drugs are good, and which drugs are bad, which drugs are acceptable, and which drugs are unacceptable. And in the meantime, we've spent billions of dollars on enforcement and billions of dollars on locking people in prisons for violating laws that are often overturned or updated later on. Joe Biden's recent pardoning of weed criminals at the federal level is a good example of this. I got a letter this week that sort of instigated this podcast that asked me why I'm always talking about race. And the person insisted, actually, I get a lot of letters like this, so they all insist, that race no longer has anything to do with the war on drugs, and that talking about it is divisive. It pushes people apart. And I found myself in this familiar position where I was almost arguing on his side. The war on drugs wasn't about race. It was about capitalism. It was about empire. It was about rich men who stood to lose fortunes doing what they had to do to preserve those fortunes. And what they had to do was get the people in the country on board with new laws to restrict certain drugs. They did what public relations people do. They knew their audience, they crafted a message that would reach them, and they got them to join their team. It just so happens that our cultural history at the time left us in a place where we had all sorts of unresolved racial tensions that were brewing and that were ripe for people to play on. So capitalism was the reason that the war on drugs was initiated. Racism was just the reason that the war on drugs was allowed to go forward. And then eventually, in the era we live in, a lot of those original racial stereotypes have gone away, and it's easy for us to lose sight of them unless we're looking close, historically. 
I also think those histories of how the war on drugs began are going to be important to remember as we begin to disassemble it, because they delegitimize the origins from both perspectives, from both the side of capitalist taking advantage of our racial anxieties, and from our cultural history of those racial anxieties being there in the first place and being able to be deployed in such a manner. We could do a lot better on both. If you want to know what happened in the war on drugs even earlier than this, you can go back and check out my Opium Wars episode, which sets the stage nicely for how we even got to where we got at the beginning of this episode. And I'm sure at some point in the future, I'll pick this line back up and add in even more pieces. Until then, love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm Ben Boyce. He lives from fix to fix. The addict must have his drug, and to get it he must have money, and that much money comes hard. Marijuana is also smoked. Marijuana is the most prevalent narcotic among juveniles. Its greatest danger lies in the fact that it is a stepping stone to the harder drugs, such as morphine and heroin. 95% of narcotic addicts begin with the use of marijuana. More deadly even than these soul-destroying drugs is the menace of marijuana.